this week on Dig Me Out. Sister, I see you. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are back with another one of our patron-picked albums, patron-selected albums. Someone has been with us for 12 months. They've uh, stuck with us through thick and thin. And it's time to talk about their record, Jay, that they picked. And of course, whenever we do those, we, we always... Uh, you know, say, hey, why don't you come on and talk about it with us? Yeah. So joining us from the comfortable, temperate city of Boston, <laughs> temporarily, <laughs> atop some fancy hotel, Tara McCook, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, I feel like I should say for my father, the, the diehard Yankees fan, uh, I'm not from Boston. I think it would make him sad if right <laughs> from Boston. <laughs> yeah, just briefly, uh, I we we'll put up a bio page for you, and I, I think you gave us some info. But you're not from Boston originally. Where'd you grow up? What like what uh, bands or you know stuff were you into when you were you know in high school or college? And was yeah. this band that you selected one of them? Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama at the very top of the Gulf Coast in the Mobile, Pensacola media market. Um, and we, my husband and I graduated in 1998. So I always say we were the last ones in the door before the whole 90s scene fell apart. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of standard kind of 90s, you know, fandoms. And this record, it, I, I picked it in part because it's personally very meaningful to me, but not necessarily the songs. Just kind of the just emotional situation around the music. So I met my husband in 1996 when we were in 10th grade. And we had like an alt rock radio station, you know, kind of an indie radio station that played 120 minutes style music. And they sponsored a festival in downtown Pensacola, Florida called Springfest. And in 1996, the Nixons headlined it. So that was the first time we hung out outside of school. <laughs> was that show? Oh, no. so it's oh. meaningful, you know, whatever. Um, but it's also I picked it also because I think it's kind of an interesting transition piece because at least around Mobile Pensacola, you know, the Telecom Act happened in early '96. This was spring in October. We lost our radio station; it got clear channeled, and uh. the like hair metal station in Pensacola became the alt rock station. So then in 97, that festival was headlined by Better Than Ezra. And then in 98, it was Creed. Uh, so that mm. was the through line there. So yep. this feels yep. like a transition piece. Yeah. I don't think you were alone there. I think that happened across the country. Yeah. Over the course of the next those several years. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the band. The album is the 1995 album FOMA, released on MCA Records. People are going to know this from the single Sister, which was released uh, actually in 96 is when it charted, uh, made it up to number six on the U.S. mainstream rock chart and number 11 on the U.S. modern rock chart, number 48 on the U.S. Hot 100. So it took a little bit while for this to actually make a dent commercially because 
The album came out in May of 95. But uh, Sister really, you know, struck as a single in 96. And Jay, I don't know if, did you go to Buzzard Fest in 96? <laughs> uh, I I went to Buzzard Fest. I don't know that it was 96. Because the Nixons were there playing Sister. Who else was on that one? Um, Our Lady Peace, Candlebox. No, not, not Our Lady Peace. I'm sorry. Candlebox, 311, No Doubt, Holy Barbarians, Tragically Hip, Goldfinger. Um, okay. I think I went the year before. Okay. Yeah, I, I, there's a few more bands that I'm forgetting. Triple Fast Action was at that show. Uh, yeah. There was like two stages, and and Goldfinger, Triple Fast Action, I think Refreshments were on the side stage, and then like No Doubt, Candlebox, 311 were on the main stage, along yeah. with Tragically Hip and Nixon's. Uh, uh, y'all got a much cooler band uh, situation than we did. Um, the other band that headlined that night was for Squirrels about three and a half weeks after the singer died. Oh, it wow. Debacle. They were clear. I mean, and like it was enough kind of raw grief that even the teenage kids in the audience were going, these guys should talk to somebody like it was it was rough. Wow. So they were the intro directly into the Nixons. I, I would have rather have gone to y'all's festival. Yeah. Well, that was a rough, rough. album yeah. for us to even review. And that was whatever, 25 years or whatever later. I couldn't imagine three weeks after that. Yeah, they were, um, in fact, we still talk about this. Um, the one thing that stood out was whichever member of the band had been singing yells into the middle of downtown Pensacola, which at the time was having a huge revival. Like it's a very religious town. He screams, we want you to leave here thinking, what the F did I just see? And, I, and they turned to me and said, well, they're going to get their wish. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was, it was wild. Wow. So, mm. We got some comments over Patreon, so we should talk about the comments that we got uh, about this record. And then, uh, well, I want to before we actually do that, I want to thank uh, Phil Fleming and Eric, Eric Norlander, who both joined us recently at the five dollar level, helping nice. us, pushing us real close to launching maybe a new podcast closer maybe we one might step test, closer we might yeah we might test one out we might do a like a a uh a sampler for just our patreon folk of a i don't know maybe dig me out 80s we'll see how that goes we'll we'll, we'll start brainstorming what we could do with that but we're getting real close because we filled up our five dollar level we filled up our 250 level and um the one dollar level has been growing steadily so we appreciate that that said, comments. So, here we go. Keith Sawyer, always with a good opinion, says, I remember thinking this was a very by-the-numbers Soundgarden knockoff when it first arrived at the station. Giving it a second listen now, there's some obvious Pearl Jam touch tones as well. The lead guitar is a bit hookier than I remember, at least on the songs like the title track and Fellowship. The production on the rhythm section feels like the biggest weaknesses. Biggest weakness, I expected more prominent bass lines, and the drums are extremely tinny, or maybe I need to switch from Sennheiser to Studio. <laughs> well played. Ex excellent uh, plug there, Keith. Uh, you'll get your check in the mail. Uh, Gary Moran says, I was just talking about Sister the other day. It seems to be largely forgotten. I'm curious how this one holds up. 
guess we'll find out in a minute. And Frank Garcia Hell says, growing up in the Dallas area, this was huge, even though they they were from Oklahoma. Maybe being on Dallas label Rainmaker Records was the reason. That's the uh, the label that put out the album before this record, which is called Halo, was released in 1994. Some of the tracks on Halo ended up getting put onto FOMA the following year when they signed MCA. Just an aside there. Um, he says, I think it was mandatory everyone in Texas owned this album, Rubberneck by the Toadies, and every Pantera album. I loved it as a teenager, but revisiting it recently, it feels like it might have suffered from the Pearl Jam Clone Wars. There are moments it feels original and interesting, but overall it feels very much of its time. Still a fun one to revisit. Wire and Happy Song were favorites. I actually liked the band that formed out of this band, Hoover, a lot more. They were very short-lived, but felt more interesting to me. So there are some comments from our folks at Patreon, which you can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to join us. As I mentioned, the $1 level is always open. You get to vote on our polls. We just wrapped the day that we were recording this episode. We wrapped up our first listener suggestion poll for uh, non-Patreon folks. Put up eight albums and we have a winner and that'll be by the time this episode airs you'll know who that was um hint it was not who everybody thought it was going to be when the poll started there was some fear we were going to go mainstream and, and right. start reviewing bands that, that went plant them and oh no we went I, the I said opposite did, direction I, I told tim i was like don't worry the patrons will save us we'll let them decide and sure enough they stay true to the format you got to put your hands or you put your fate in the hands of the voters yep. and they will and they will lead you in the right direction. So I just want to give a brief history so everybody knows. So uh, it was mentioned they're from Oklahoma City formed in 1990. Uh they released I guess you would say a, a demo cassette. It was called the Nixons slash Green Album in 1990. It was only on cassette. Uh then they released in 1994 an album on Rainmaker Records called Halo. Some of those songs were reused for the 1995 major label release, FOMA made it to number 77 on the Billboard 200. And then in 1997, they released the album The Nixons, also on MCA. They were dropped by MCA. Shock that a band was dropped in the 90s. Uh, their 2000 album, Latest Thing, came out on Cock Records. Or is it Cock or Coke or K O C H J? Why do you say that? Let's say Coke. Coke. Or Koch. 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 Uh, and then they had a couple of EPs. Uh, 1992's Six came out on Dragon Street Records. 1998's Scrapbook was, was after they were released from the MCA Records contract. Uh, they went back to Rainmaker Records and put out the Scrapbook EP. And then in 2017, after being separated for a number of years, they got back together to do some you know, reunion shows and whatnot, and they put out a an EP called Song of the Year. And they've had a number of um, singles chart that we mentioned from both the FOMA albums. And then they also even had some songs that charted in the uh, number, let's see, in the 1997 album, uh, the self-titled one, the uh, song Baton Rouge when it made its number nine on the U.S. mainstream rock chart. So, but that was about it as far as any 
uh, charting success. And then uh, the main members of the band are Zach Malloy, who's the vocal and guitarist of the band. During the uh, prime era of the band, it was Jesse Davis on guitar, Ricky Brooks on bass, and John Humphrey on drums. Um, They also had Ricky Wolking on bass, uh, who left after the 1997 album, and then, or he joined the band after the 1997 album. And then Ray Lugier, who I believe played with like Korn and some other folks, kind of like one of those guys who played drums for a lot of bands. He played with the band on their 2000 album. David Lee Roth. Yeah. Well, there you go. He's in Korn now. Um, David Lee Roth is in Korn? No, Ray Lugier played for both. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, uh, yeah. So, and they've... So, Zach Malloy has gone on, who's a lead singer, has become, like, one of those, like, behind-the-scenes Nashville and, you know, songwriting gurus. He writes for Carrie Underwood, Blake Shelton, Chris Daughtry, like, those people. So... He's had uh-huh. a good career outside of uh, the Nixons. And uh, that's it. So let's get into this record. Let's talk about the Nixons, FOMA, 1995. This is smack dab in the middle of the 90s. Tara, let me ask you something. Sure. When Prior to doing this show, when was the last time you think you actually sat down and listened to this whole record? The whole record, top to bottom, it had been easily a decade, if not longer, I had a couple of the songs occasionally in rotation in sort of the car playlist on like the phone or the iPod. But yeah, it had been a while before we picked this up. So in, in going back and listening to it now, were there things since you're listening for like a critical, uh, critical ear, mm-hmm. you know, were there things that stood out to you as, well, I didn't really recognize how cool that was, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but now that I have a little more, you know, experience, a little more knowledge, a little, you know, more more albums under the belt. Like, I can pick things up now, and I've heard some things that maybe I didn't hear the first time around. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think the folks who were calling out kind of the similarities with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, it's a very comfortable sound, sonically, and it just takes you right back to, you know, being in the moment. It's very of its time in a way that's not cloying, but... The one thing that did stand out to me that I probably did not pick up on or even really enjoyed when I was a teenager was they have a lot of all capital letters, important things to say <laughs> in these songs. And they're, they don't have the range, <laughs> bluntly. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> message going on here that's really odd and complicated. And there's a lot of and I'm really surprised I didn't notice this more being an Alabamian. There's a lot of tortured Christianness going on there. That's actually right in line with a lot of the guys who were in bands at my high school. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was a great sound, but lyrically there were some challenges. <laughs> mm. So Jay, I don't know. Have you mm-hmm. ever listened to this album all the way through? No, I remember the the single. I mean, it was at least in Cleveland radio it was played to death. So so very familiar with the single. Yeah, but, as uh, was I. I never listened to the record. And the same boat. I had never listened to the record all the way through. So what was something that you liked about it? Well, I, I'm looking at the release date. It's January 1, 1995. So yeah, it, this is dead right smack dab. You couldn't be more in the middle of the 90s than this record, both in terms of the sound and you know, literally when it was released. So there's something about that that is, is kind of fun to go back to. Um, 
just they kind of cover all the ground of the 90s. You know, you hear moments of Tool, you hear moments of Pearl Jam, you hear some Soundgarden, you hear a little Matchbox 20. It's like you go through rock radio in the 90s and it's almost like every band is represented here in in, uh, some form or another. So there's an aspect of that that, that's kind of a trip down memory lane and fun. Um, I think the other thing that, that stood out is that I think there's, you know, some good guitar work on here. Um, you can hear, you know, obviously some trappings around detuning and the chuggy kind of, you know, riffs, um, that it became kind of stereotypical in the nineties, but then there's some other parts that were, it's a little bit more creative and you can hear, um, some decent leads, some layering, some riffs and some chord progressions that are, you know, pretty compelling in terms of how they put, uh, you know, the song will be shifting between these um, almost pop-oriented parts and then there'll be this kind of dark, heavier section that's a, sometimes not predictable. Um, so just the way that the guitar riffs and songwriting is shifting between um, a band that sounds like they're struggling to figure out if they're going to be kind of a ra- mainstream, you know, alt-rock band or if they're going to try to be a, a heavy, like, serious you know, a pseudo metal band. So there's some moments on here where they, they kind of split those two things and it sounds pretty good. And there's some other moments where they go in one of the other two directions and maybe it's not as successful. Here's the weird thing about this record. There is nothing that I like about it, but there's nothing that I dislike about it. It is like lukewarm water. Yeah. Like it's, I'm completely fine listening to it, but when I like listen, like try to focus in on it, like I don't find, there's nothing that I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Like it sounds like really competent, pretty well-written songs. The guitar tone sounds fine it's pretty much the same throughout the whole record which i don't necessarily ascribe to as being a positive thing i like it when you know they decide to like maybe do a little some of some effects on a guitar or what have you but they dial in a really solid guitar tone that's not brittle it's not too compressed it's not too uh fuzzy it's just like it's just it's just right but it's there for every single song and the only song that like really captures my attention is the single sister because there's dynamics in that song 
where yeah. a lot of the songs there aren't much in terms of dynamics so they just kind of like float together so it's like this very even like it's like you're on a boat and there's no waves you're just like sitting there yeah <laughs> and it's like it's not offensive but it's not all that like engaging at the same time which is really it's a weird spot to be in because when i listen you know band like the toadies got brought up and while i can see them being compared to that band the toadies to me had like at least a little like personality to them in terms of some weirdness on some of the songs and the and the vocals were a little off kilter at times and the only thing that's like off kilter is like you mentioned it tara there's like this political social i don't know what's going on you know this the yelling at, at you know uh there's some like social issue stuff that he's yelling about in some of these songs and um when i would like focus in at that like i was feeling like attacked <laughs> when he was like yelling i was like is this directed at me because i don't know who he's yelling at but i'm the i'm the listener and i'm he's using you as the descriptor and and i'm like man i don't i don't remember like I don't know why he's getting so riled. I mean, Pearl Jam did that a little bit more so on the, on the, I guess the second record is where there's some definite, like very political lyrics on that record. But like the first record, it's, it's not super political. There's a lot of personal stuff on that album. He's getting out, but I don't know where that that's coming from in terms of uh, being so, so political and so, accusatory in some yeah. of the lyrics uh maybe you're right maybe there's there it's work it's that bible belt sort of working out some some issues with his upbringing but uh yeah. i just found it odd it was very strange um there were definitely some you know there were a lot of kids who were going through my school around the time of all the televangelist scandals who had been raised super super religious who were very angry about it and could not articulate why like they felt sold out, but they didn't know why. And I felt a lot of like similarities with some of that. And just there, there was just sort of a lot of random screaming of obscenities <laughs> kind of <laughs> aimlessly and pointlessly and not like super artfully, but then they had such great writing in other songs. Like there are five or six songs where they really hit the nail on the head. I sort of have a, like a split, they could have also stood an editor in a couple of places where maybe you don't just want to drift off into randomly kind of three and a half minutes of digression in the song. You know, yeah, it was odd. Yeah. There's a, a lot of tracks that are four and a half and longer. I think there's, there's two tracks in the three minute range, which is surprisingly not the single. I would have thought that they would have, Maybe that got trimmed down for a radio edit because it's about four and a half minutes. But uh, Jay, you know, there was you mentioned Matchbox Twenty in uh, in talking about the band, and I really feel like if if you go and listen to Sister and then like early Matchbox Twenty, like Push, man, that is like the there is such a close connective tissue to those songs. It's just like sonically and and you know, the sort of the tempo that they're at. And I know that, you know, Matchbox 20 is pretty much a joke in terms of the nineties and relegated to like, I don't know. They're not grunge. I mean, they're like late nineties, alternative pop. I don't know what do you even call them. Pretty much the last of the 
huge selling bands of that era. When did that album come out? Like 98, the huge one that had push and the other singles on it. I mean, honestly, when I, yeah, when I pulled this song back out, I, I, I couldn't even, I just remember they had a big single on the radio when I pulled it out and started listening to it. If you would have told, if you would have just played that song for me and asked me who I thought it was, I would have guessed matchbox 20. Like, I don't know that I would have put together that it was the Nixons. I remember the Nixons and I remember they had a hit song and I remember this song, but it didn't, in my own mind, put the connection together until I actually sat down and listened to the record. Right. And if you had said that this song came out in 97, I would have been like, yeah, I could, I yep. could definitely hear that that came out in 97. True. So the fact that it came out in 95 is even like a kind of early. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Good point. I, I, uh, Looking at the dates, I assumed it was a year or two after, towards the so end. So it's of the funny y'all said that because um, the song that immediately came to mind when you said Matchbox Twenty was Long Day. They used to play that really heavily on the radio along the same time they were playing the Nixons, and Long Day came out October nineteen ninety six. So they were playing Sister and the first Matchbox Twenty song on the radio, and our radio station loved them some Matchbox Twenty. Um, the DJ at the radio station, got a Matchbox 20 tattoo in 1996. Wow. Yeah. They're, they're a Florida band, right? Uh, something like that. And Rob yeah. Thomas is definitely from that part of the world. But yeah, yeah definitely got the tattoo then. So, <laughs> But as soon as you said it, I was like, yes, that makes perfect sense. It, is it on the small of his back? Uh, it was a woman. <laughs> it was on her arm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like biceps. I wonder how she feels about that now. <laughs> I guess Thomas is still famous. Yeah. Yeah. True. So that song, Sister, was on the, the 1994 release that came out on Rainmaker. So I'm I'm wondering if I, I'd, I'd like to know the history a little bit, believe it or not, of, of whether or not they had sort of like a regional hit with that song. And then the MCA picked it up and said, all right, well, We'll throw it out nationally because that's what they did with a lot of bands. You know, like when we talked to the guys from Ultimate Fake Book, I mean, they had a record out. They had a couple of songs are getting played on local radio. They got an offer from Epic 550, re-released the album and threw it out to, you know, radio to see if anything stuck and nothing did. In this case, Smile did or not Smile, Sister did. And, uh, you know, got him on some big festivals for a couple years and allowed him to put out a second record on a, on a major label. You know, the other thing I thought of too, that, uh, you'll have a point of view on this, Tim is, uh, you know, we went through obviously the late eighties, early nineties where it became, you know, rock bands were about power ballads. That's how you got on the radio. That's how you got a big hit. Then we went through the early nineties where they kind of disappeared for the most part. And then all of a sudden they started reemerging in a different, way and this feels like maybe one of the first power ballads of the alternative rock era because when you really listen to it i don't know revisiting i was like basically if you just tone down the drums a little bit this this is pretty much a classic power ballad format for this song yeah um and i did look it up the single on discogs it has a radio edit of 330 so that makes that that makes sense to me that when they went to radio with a song that's one minute shorter. I don't know where the cut is. I'd like to hear that comp- in comparison to the to the 
you know, studio version or the album mm-hmm. version. But that makes total sense that they would uh, shorten that. So I think a lot of the record needs shortening. I mean, it's it's a long record, and it, I mean, this is not unusual. We're used to, you know, this in the '90s, but it's it's basically twelve songs. There's one, you know, what is what is JLM? That's 19 seconds. It's basically twelve songs. It's like 56 minutes long, and this yep. could easily be a a 45 minute record. I mean, they, you could trim a minute off of every song, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, the songwriting on this sounds uh, pretty, like, early. It doesn't sound very sophisticated in terms of, I mean, Sister really stands out in terms of uh, just the songwriting alone of yeah. being at a different level than a lot of the other material on here. Um, it pretty much sounds like a band early recording, trying to figure out who exactly they are and how they write songs and and in the recording too, like it's um, with a mix on this record is a kind of a mess. If you listen to it in headphones and you, yeah, the the drums kind of float all over the the mix. Sometimes they're like almost panned to the left, and then the bass uh, on some songs is you can't find it, and in other songs it's just blaring in your face, like it loudest instrument by far. Well, I uh, bet that's a that's a result of you know some of these songs were taken off of a previous release. So yeah. I'm guessing that some of the stuff that's probably not mixed as well was probably from that earlier release. And then they got to go in with MCA money, write a couple new songs. And that's, those are probably better sounding and they probably remixed, you know, try yeah. to bring those other ones up to par. But I mean, if you're playing with MCA money with MCA, you know, with, you know, getting into a studio with that, you can probably get a better producer, you know, on the record as opposed to, you know, whatever you're doing on your own. And, um, so I'm, I'm, that to me is probably totally because of the fact that they, excuse me, they, uh, recorded it twice essentially. And, and sometimes, and some of the records we've reviewed are in that situation where you can, you, you know, you, they're reusing, you know, kind of, uh, independent recordings or whatever, uh, and it's okay. Like it kind of works. It's fine. Uh, for this band, I don't know. They're kind of, they're going for a big rock sound, you know, so it needs a big rock production. I'm, I'm a little thrown by the mishmash of engineering production recording right. sort of overall approach to this. You can, it doesn't sound quite conceptually complete, uh, in that way. I feel like this is a record that hid really well on mixtapes in cars. Because that's, yeah. that's definitely how I experienced it a lot was, you know, second generation dub mixtapes in cars. <laughs> and I didn't notice any of this stuff. And then, you know, coming back as an adult, I listened on good headphones. I listened on a nice stereo. And it's like... <sighs> 
ooh, that was thin. That was <laughs> weird. Where did True. that whole channel go? <laughs> what was yeah. True. Yeah. A lot of the stuff definitely would have, uh, I would experience like, yeah, on a mixtape, spliced up and yeah, dubbed three times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. A car. And Keith mentioned it in his comments. I, I definitely picked up, there were certain songs where the drums are real tinny and you get that like popping snare sound. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not on every track, but it's just on certain tracks. Yep. Also, I noticed yeah. um, this actually got a vinyl release. Out of all what? the albums to, to come out in 1995, this got a vinyl release. So then you're dealing with the fact that when you you know master a record, you master it differently for vinyl than you do yeah. for CD. So... How was this mastered? I don't know. Wow. At, 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 on the release, the whatever, January 1, 1995 release date, it was out on vinyl. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It wasn't re-released? Wow. No. The, it was a, if you go to Discogs, you can buy it right now. There's like there's For six bucks, you can buy the original, the original vinyl release. No kidding. Yeah. Interesting. This is one of the very few. You know what's weird is that there have been albums by bands that we've reviewed that are huge bands, and they we're still waiting on the vinyl. Like we're just now getting the posies, like frosting on the beater vinyl re-release after all this time. And you could get it; they did release it back then, but you couldn't find it because it was impossible. It was like two hundred dollars to find a. But you can get this for five ninety nine, and like we did, you know, the Luster album the first season. I got that off of Discogs for like eight bucks. Because who's who's buying Luster records? Me. That's it. I'm the only guy buying Luster on vinyl. <laughs> but like, there's a whole slew of of bands that never got you know vinyl yeah. releases, and they're uh, still waiting. You know, we're still waiting. We're trying to get Sheila Divine on some vinyl, and. uh you know, that's all. Must, must have been an MCA up. thing. Maybe it was just standard at that time what MCA was doing. So it may be, you know, it's possible. A lot of these bands made that like, hey, you know, we want we want it 200 copies put out on vinyl just for the, the hell of it sort of thing. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's how they got it done. Yeah, Jay, I'm like, a, I, when it comes to this record, I'm kind of like, I don't, know, I don't know if you are too. We can sort of get to our thoughts on this but like i don't really hate it but i'm like eh it's it's fine like yeah i i this the single definitely like reminded me that that was a good song i hadn't heard that song in forever um so but i was like okay this is a good tune well written i wish there was more of that on the record i wish there were more dynamics and i wish that they explored that pop end of the songwriting more so than the uh sort of antagonistic um aggressive sound because i don't think the band pulls it off in an interesting way so that's i'm kind of i'm with you it's a shoulder Um. shrug (laughs) (laughs) but that doesn't dismiss the fact that this was your first date out of uh in rock and roll history Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, and I was thinking about how do I actually feel about this musically? It's like, 
you know, you, when you said it's sort of a shrug, like I like the way it sounds. I find it like a pleasant listen. You know, it's not unenjoyable, but with a couple of uh, exceptions, you, eh, I don't know. It's interesting that um, the singer has gone on to Nashville and gone into writing bro country songs. Uh, Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra has done the same thing, making Buku Bank writing terrible country songs. And it's like, well, I'm glad there's kind of like a, you know, like a pension plan for these guys who have things to say and can't quite get over their skis. You know what I mean? So it's a lot, there's a lot going on there, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have no issue with, with people that figure that part out. It's just like, (laughs) you know, if you're smart enough to, first off, if you're willing to stick with it and then, just come to the fact that, hey, this is just a job, right? I'm going to figure out how I can make money doing it. And God bless you. Yep. You can do it. I, I think what's, to me, the merit of this record would be, it would make a really compelling time capsule argument. You know, if you had a, you know, we could do a round table sometime. Of, you got to pick one record to put in a time capsule to represent the 90s. What's the record going to be? I think you can make a pretty strong case that this would be a good record to do. Uh, you're sending it to outer space. We want to explain to aliens what the nineties music sounded like, you Mm. know, it's not going to be the best record. It's going to be, what is the one that best explains it? Uh, this might be a pretty damn good candidate to do that. Um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, to me, that's where the merit comes from. Yeah. I think this falls into the same sort of mid nineties, second or third tier of like i don't know like brother kane and (laughs) uh bush you know maybe not even bush because the the songwriting the first bush record is pretty good yeah bush kind of has their own sound you might not like seven mary three yes yeah you know that would that would be one that better than ezra that you mentioned that's not far off um, I think I think this band is more vanilla than any of those bands. <laughs> <laughs> you want to have a, a lukewarm off? These <laughs> this band is more lukewarm than any of those bands that you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, like cumbersome wow. actually has some texture. That riff, yeah, there, there was yeah, some texture in that riff. <laughs> the singer had a unique voice. It was a little gritty. So where does collective soul fall on that continuum? Oh, they're yeah. their own sort of weird. You know, I mean, because they were they it's weird. That's a band like live that just sold a ridiculous amount of records and also had a just a massive number of singles. But like, is anybody going to be like, I mean, I know they have probably their diehard fans, but like. How many times do you go into a, a, a record store or a, or a half price books or wherever you buy your CDs, if you buy CDs, and there's just filled with collective soul CDs like it is right. with live CDs, like it is with, you know, so many of these bands. But like they, they're played. I mean, both of those bands are I don't listen to the radio anymore, but I would guess that they're still alternative mod, or rock stations that are still spinning those bands pretty regularly. Yep. Yep, we had a, just, had a broken down car with the, where we had to get a rental and it didn't have a Bluetooth connection. And so we were stuck with modern rock radio as it 
stands and yeah, a lot of collective soul, a lot of live. Like, <laughs> like, oh, okay. So yeah. you are just here and that's where you're going to stay. Well, so they, just, just based on that, they can sell tickets and sell plenty of records. Well, I've I mean, actually sponsored an indie car re- not too recently. Like one of the minor indie car drivers had the live logo on the back of his car. And we were just looking <laughs> at it going, are you serious? <laughs> what? Wow. Yeah. I need to see that. I mean, I kind of feel like live and collective soul are sort of like the, I don't know, the REO Speedwagon of the 90s or the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're not offensive. They sound good on radio. They have, you know, the hooks and, you know, you instantly recognize the song, even though they it might come on and you might not even like realize who it is, mm-hmm. but it's familiar enough. They just leave it on and you'll be there for the commercial break. So the 2025 greater Gulf state fair headlined by all these dudes. <laughs> it will be. It, it's already happening now. I mean, you've got like Everclear does that Summerland tour with where yeah. each band only plays like five or six songs. Yeah. And because that's all people really want to hear. So you get to hear like, you know, five or six Everclear songs and five or six Sugar Ray songs or whoever they drag out on that tour. Last summer at the Fairfax County, Virginia Government Center, they have this festival called Celebrate Fairfax. Your uh, musical entertainment was Bush, Fastball, Vertical Horizon, and Everclear. Wow, there you go. Package deal, $9 a ticket for all of that. And that was in kind of a descending order of quality. I'll go ahead and put that out there. Bush and fastball <laughs> were fantastic. Vertical Horizon was pretty good. Uh, Everclear screwed up the words to Santa Monica. Oh my goodness. That, that happened. <laughs> but yeah, those, as people who are planning 20th high school reunions, um, my husband and I are very much enjoying this whole like nostalgia tour resurgence thing because it's making our party planning very easy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hey, they got to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They got to eat. All right, Jay. You know what yep. time it is. We're the Let's album. Battery P, decent single. Where do you land? Uh, I haven't had one of these in a long time, I don't think. Uh, I'm going to go with a single. Womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Corey. <laughs> Uh, that's an appropriate that's an appropriate use of a womp womp. Yes, Jay, you have demonstrated the proper use of a womp womp. Um yeah, I'm kind of with you. I mean, I might I I I could Yeah, I'm probably at a, at a single because I do the I would do um you know the single. I would do the single and then <laughs> I mean, all the other songs are fine. I don't. I maybe I would do if I was pushed to pick a song. Maybe I would do "Happy Song" as the. Yep, that was my other one too. As the B side <laughs> to that. Yep. yep. I don't know. There are a lot of okay songs that could fill that void, but that's the one that like I actually remember what was going on in that song, so mm-hmm. that's why it sticks around. So, Tara, do you want to chime in? With yeah. uh, your better album, or or were the album better EP decent single? I came down at EP. 
Okay. Because there were five or six pretty solid songs. Um, Happy Song would have to have the last two and a half minutes of la 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 whatever cut off. Yes. Um, I would put the entire um, Jesus Has Made Me Sad suite <laughs> into a separate EP and kind of put it over there at like, seriously, go to your pastor and work out your issues. I would scrap passion completely because um, as someone who's been through a divorce, like, really, what are you even doing right now? <laughs> um, and then th- I would do Sweet Beyond, Sister, Smile, Wire, Trampoline, and then, like, two-thirds of Happy Song, I think would be a really killer EP. <laughs> I need to go back and look and see of those picks, which were actually on the original album and which were new to this one. Yeah. I will say my notes were more favorable on the second half of the record, and that's a lot of what you just picked. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's yeah represented by the earlier material or the later material. It's less heavy, too. Like I found the beginning, the first half of the record tends to dabble in this tool riff, riffy metal thing that they don't pull off very well. So yeah. Whereas the second half, they're more trying to be a pop rock band. I agree. So. Yep. That's the space that they're uh that they sound good in. I just yeah. wish that they had explored that more. So, Tara, thank you so much for uh for bringing this record to the podcast and also for supporting the podcast like yeah. you do. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. This is my first ever podcast. <laughs> well, now you can you have a uh, for your LinkedIn page you can say that you were on a uh, <laughs> podcast and you can start. Maybe there is a way to combine uh, your professional. Maybe there's like a tax podcast, music podcast. You could call it. I'm trying to think of a funny plan words, but I am completely. <laughs> Okay. Um, most, most tax jokes are usually like, you know, groaners anyways, but yeah, um, this would, this would be interesting. Yeah. As long as you like promise to endorse my skills, I'll put it on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Tara was an excellent guest on our podcast. She came prepared on the band history and (laughs) that would be funny if we did do that. If we endorsed everyone (laughs) on LinkedIn, (laughs) I need to figure out how to create a business page on LinkedIn for dig me out. And then maybe we could get an intern that way. That's how we, how we do that. Uh, I want to remind everybody you can go to our Patreon page. Like I mentioned, it's top of the show, patreon.com forward slash dig me out. Join us at $1 a month for bonus content. Like we just put up recently. We talked about some new music that we've been listening to as well as get access to our polls and entered into our quarterly giveaways, which Tara, didn't you win something at some point? I'm trying to remember what you won. Yes, I did. Um, I won the, um, the wash of emo book. I also won the dig me out LP. Oh, that's right. Which is why I have a record player now. Because my husband bought me a turntable. Well, we get wow. a kickback on every record yeah. player sale now. So <laughs> that's just part of a grand scheme of kickbacks to us. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it was a very worthy investment. So thank you for inspiring that. Excellent. Have you bought any more records since then? 
I bought a lot of used stuff. I went back and bought a lot of original issues of stuff I like from the 70s. Like I bought a bunch of original Steely Dan pressings just to see if it sound different. And they do. It's very, that's a fun experiment to do. Oh, yeah. 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 The original vinyl versus the compressed Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. Like I got my first Steely Dan records on like AAD CDs when that was still a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is way better. Nice. Uh, And then I need to remind everybody, iTunes. We've gotten some nice comments recently. One not so nice, but that's okay. We'll let it go. Uh, (laughs) We want to thank everyone for uh, posting their comments over at iTunes. We do appreciate it. If you want to leave some positive feedback on the show, please feel free to do so. And uh, that's it for Jam Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Come take me.